The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is truly an honor to welcome my guest, Sister Simone Campbell. She is the executive director of Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice, a federal advocacy organization founded by Catholic sisters to lobby in Washington, D.C. for policies that mend the gaps in income and wealth in the United States. She has led six cross-country nuns-on-the-bus trips focused on tax justice, health care, economic justice, comprehensive immigration reform, and more. She wrote the famous Nuns Letter, which is considered by many as critically important in convincing Congress to support the Affordable Care Act in 2010. She's also the author of A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community, which is published by HarperCollins. She has received numerous awards. She has spoken at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. She's appeared on 60 Minutes, The Colbert Report, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. She is a religious leader, an attorney, and poet with extensive experience in public policy and advocacy for systemic change. Welcome, Sister Simone. Oh, it's great to be with you. Well, I heard you speak in 2015 at the Bioneers Conference in California, and I was smitten with your talk titled Community Healing for the 21st Century. And then I most recently heard you speak, or you visited the community where I live, Columbia, Missouri, and you were collecting stories. You were brought here by the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, and you were gathering stories about what it was like to live in rural communities. And I thought, oh, I've just got to have you on with me. So thank you for being here. Oh, glad to do it. It was a great conversation we had in Columbia, so I'm glad we can extend it. Yeah, me too. Well, the first question that comes to mind is, what was it in your life that made you aware of social injustice and inequities and really gave you the drive to correct them? Oh, a big meta question. I think early on, it struck me that I grew up in a tract house in Southern California, and not everybody had the same access to a good place to live. I had friends that were in a small, teeny apartment and another friend that lived in a really big house. And I knew that people struggled, but some people had a lot. And I always thought that it was important to share. And I had a sister. My sister, Katie, was a year and a half younger than I. And we would watch, this is like late 50s, early 60s, watch on the news the issues about civil rights and watch the young kids in... Birmingham standing up to the sheriff for integration, for justice. And I always thought that if those young kids could do it, well, maybe I needed to stand up too. And so I think I was inspired by their action. And since I knew it was also practical that I had friends who had different economic realities, different levels of struggle, that I thought, I need to get involved Another aspect for me also, I'm sure now that I'm old enough to look back at this, is that my sister Kate, to whom I was very close, 
when she was a sophomore in high school, was diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's disease and given three to five years to live. And so for part of that, for me, what happened was two things. One was I knew the fragility of life early on. I was a senior in high school at the time, and I knew life was fragile. And I also had a certain sense of urgency that we don't have time to waste. We've got to get engaged. And that impelled me then to get involved in my community, my religious community as a sister of social service. Mm-hmm. The other piece, though, was I also realize now that I sort of felt a responsibility to live my sister Katie's spirit, too. Mm-hmm. Um, she died after five years with this difficult illness. And so I've I've done a combination of both witness being inspired, but then also this sense of urgency and fragility of life, I think, mm-hmm. are the two factors that went together. Well, I'm sorry about your loss. I know, but you know, the irony is, is, and this is the faith aspect, is that the loss, while is a treasured hole in my life, is also a game because it also gives energy, gives life, gives insight, gives compassion in a way that I, I don't know that I would have had the same compassion if mm-hmm. I hadn't have had that experience. So yes, it's painful, but it's also a richness too. Yeah. You know, your talk at Bioneers moved me so much that I actually included a little clip of it, a web link, and I'll provide that for our listeners too, in my holiday letter to my friends and family, because I thought, wow, if anything, you are helping us become, have greater empathy for our fellow human beings. And I was hoping that we might go through that talk that you gave. You shared with us three virtues for the 21st century. And I wonder if we could go through those. Oh, absolutely. I, I love this. The thing that's so important is the the first virtue is what I call a, a modicum of joy. And, you know, in our grim world right now, there's not a lot of joy around. And what often happens with those of us who care about, like, food justice and engagement with these really, really tough issues. And, you know, I lobby here in Washington, D.C., and it's it's really tempting to just get grim and upset and down, depressed. And, and then we say to our friends, when we're most depressed, come join us. It's not exactly a good advertisement for the work that we do. It's just not community building to right. be that depressed. And what I've discovered is, that if we're actually in relationship with people, then there's joy abounds. But as long as I'm trying to do this, thinking I'm controlling it all on my own, and I'm kind of the lone ranger, if you want to use that image, but that joy isn't present. And so I think one of the critical virtues for now is to find some joy and share it. Share it with those around you. And I do know that Saying something with a smile, you get a lot more interest than if we're just grim and, you know, that depressed approach. Right. The second virtue that I talked about there is one that is is in short supply. And I, I think if you have joy, then there's more, I find I have more space inside myself to listen to others. And so the second virtue is holy curiosity. And holy curiosity is being interested in somebody else's point of view and listening to that perspective. 
we don't talk to each other about serious things. I often, if I'm in a grocery store or just meeting people in the metro, either people don't talk or they talk about a sports team or the weather. I mean, those are the big topics here in D.C. Right. We've got one or two other things we can talk about. So I've exercised holy curiosity by being curious about what do people really think about what's going on politically? What do you think about the level of violence in our nation? What do you think about what's going on at the border? And if we can listen to each other, I think it's really a step forward where we can make our democracy better. So I think the 21st century calls for holy curiosity. And that's why we did the listening session in Columbia with you all, is we were doing a series around the country because we're curious to learn the experience of folks who live in rural communities. Mm-hmm. Holy curiosity is, I think, one of the most sacred opportunities to open our minds and our hearts to something new. Mm-hmm. And it's and- interesting, too, that so many people have stories that they so badly want to share. Isn't that the truth? Oh, my gosh. Well, and and they just bubble out of them if you just but give them a chance. Yeah. But the challenge is, the reason why this is a virtue, this is hard to do, because we have to listen with our whole beings, not thinking of oh, what I'm going to say when it's my turn. Yes. <laughs> but absolutely just be receiving another person's story. It's sacred. It's really sacred. Mm. I interrupted you. I think you were going to go on to the third. Oh, I was. I was, but that's fine. It was an important interruption, that's for sure. Well, the third one goes, they all kind of go together, but the third one is we need to exercise sacred gossip. Now, what I mean by that is not ordinary gossip, you know, that gossipy family kind of thing that goes on sometimes. Not that. But sacred gossip is where we share the stories that we've heard as a result of holy curiosity. So for me, it's like sharing some of the stories that we hear from our listening sessions at the Rural Roundtable or sharing the stories that I heard talking to this guy in the Safeway supermarket when I was standing in line to buy my groceries. I mean, he was really concerned about what was happening with food stamps and how his uh, daughter and her family were going to get by because the amount of money was being cut. And to hear his worry for his daughter was really, I mean, it was so poignant to see a dad so concerned. And that story then I've shared in some lobby visits on Capitol Hill, but I share it here now to say, We all worry about family. We worry about each other. And to receive those stories, that's a sacred moment. That's Mm -hmm. a sacred moment. So I think if we were more in relationship with a bit of joy, a bit of curiosity, and then the sacred gossip where we share the stories that we hear, it'll help weave us back together. We're kind of torn apart right now. Oh, desperately so. It's critical. Yeah. And I really appreciated the way you spoke about how we were trained that you you mentioned that you know the changes began really in about the 1980s where we were so impressed upon to be all about the individual and you said that was an unpatriotic lie to say that we are based in individualism and that we really we are based in community 
and our world is based in community, and that really does give us joy. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because that it's being connected to each other that is the joy. And the reason we've got so much fear and anger right now in our nation, I believe, is because we have bought into this idea that we all have to do it alone. Yeah. We're going to live alone, the rugged individual. Well, President Reagan started that law. He changed the founding myth of the founding of our nation. He changed it to be just this one person rode off into the West and settled it by himself. Well, now since you and I are both women, we noticed that we got left out of that story. But the fact is we were founded in community in Jamestown, the Pilgrims the early colonies, and our founding constitution says it's we the people. Now, the other day I got called a socialist because I was suggesting that it was an unpatriotic lie. We were based in individualism. And that was kind of fun. I I, I mean, I have a strange sense of fun, but I do have a, a, a joy about this work because I'm telling truths. And so I just laughed and I said, oh, no, I'm not a socialist. I'm a constitutionalist. It's we the people. It's all of us together. Why don't you come and join me as a constitutionalist, I said to this guy. (laughs) He he didn't know what to do with it, but it was kind of fun. That is a wonderful response that we can all use, because I think that words can be so damaging when we put labels on each other. So finding different words that maybe somebody hadn't thought of before kind of changes the interpretation a bit. So thank you for that. I'm going to use it myself. I just have to take one break and remind everyone that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Sister Simone Campbell, a poet, a social justice attorney, and one of the nation's most influential faith-based progressive activists. She led the famous 2012 Nuns on the Bus Tour to challenge congressional budget proposals that radically slash programs for the poor. She shares her vision of how we can heal our divisions and differences, create a renewed sense of community, and build a far more just, peaceful, verdant, and compassionate world. I love that you collect stories. And you spoke in California about how you're an attorney. You present facts. You present data. But data doesn't move the dial, does it? Oh, no. I mean, data, people's eyes glaze over, actually. Yeah. And everybody on Capitol Hill says, oh, they want data, you know, all the staffers and all this but it never changes anybody's minds. So we give data, we'll do it, but we'll also tell stories because that's what democracy is about, is getting everybody's story to be considered. Right. Now, you've been traveling around the country and you've been speaking to rural communities. Columbia was just one of your stops. Have you found consistent common denominators among all rural communities? Yes, actually, there are some things that bubble up and are quite similar among the different communities. We've done a series of 10 so far, and we have about seven more to do. But among those are the challenge of health care in rural America is huge, partially because of distance to travel to get any sort of care. But the other piece that was, and that one I sort of expected But what I hadn't expected was that for farmers who have crops that they sell once or twice a year, that having a health insurance system that depends on monthly payments doesn't work with their economic cycle. 
And I've been totally surprised by that, that the system was built for an urban salaried environment, mm-hmm. but doesn't work in rural America. That's really interesting. What have you found in relation to the food system? Have you found good food in rural communities? What's that been like for you? Ironies of ironies. We have uh, some places we've found good food, but more often than not, there during the growing season, you can have a small. Uh, rural communities have small or large, actually, kitchen gardens where they grow their own vegetables and all that. But what we found is in rural communities, they are lacking in grocery stores. We were down in Mississippi, and there wasn't a grocery store for about 40 miles. Mm-hmm. You could get gas station chicken. <laughs> it made me nervous to hear that. But they would have apparently fried chicken in the gas station cooked by the somebody. I don't know who. And you could go get that. But there wasn't any real grocery store around. The Dollar General, you can get canned goods uh, that are usually out of date, but you can get canned goods, but not any fresh vegetables. We were in New Mexico, and I said uh, they were talking about how whole counties, big swaths of the state, don't have grocery stores to get fresh fruits and vegetables. And I said, oh, my heavens, you have a big food desert. And the, the Laguna Pueblo chief says to me, don't go giving deserts a bad name. Deserts are beautiful. Just look around. And here we were out in the desert, and I was giving deserts a bad name by calling it a food desert. But it's true. They don't have access to affordable food. It's a huge problem, which was really shocking. And then the other piece is some of the production methods that are attempting to, in farming or also raising meat, you know, like hogs and and mm. cows and stuff, or I guess it's steers. I better get my nomenclature. You can tell I'm a city person, but <laughs> that some of the conditions in which these animals are grown are very sort of, I mean, violent, immoral, not good, and create a huge problem for the surrounding community. Uh, that was, as you know, the big story in Colombia. I was shocked by what they were saying about the Chinese company that owns basically all of three counties and raises these hogs in confined spaces and only they harvest, I love the word harvest, 8,000 hogs a day, but they only employ five people because it's all mechanized. Mm -hmm. I I was stunned by that. So, Mm -hmm. and that impacts our food supply. Exactly. We have to wake up to this. We have to wake up to this. And our public health. And it really divides communities. I don't know if you saw much of that in your travels, but you touched on this earlier where you said, we seem to be so divided now. And part of your mission is to mend those divides and bring us together. How can we use these stories to bring us together and create more empathy? Well, I think that's where the first piece of listening is important to hear somebody else's story as well as my own. And then to be able to respond with compassion so that I don't automatically go to judgment and write people off. Mm -hmm. I was really struck at the roundtable in Columbia where one of the women said that for her to stand up in a small community was very difficult because she would be labeled in that community. 
Whereas right. if you go to a rally or a demonstration in the city, we're pretty anonymous. Exactly. So my compassion for her and the challenge of rural communities standing for a principle where there's a difference and divergence of ideas, my heart opened it a whole new way because I did not understand why rural communities wouldn't speak out. Yeah. Now I do because of her bravery in saying how hard it is to be stigmatized. Right. And, you know, I think, too, one of the things that you mentioned in California was there are so many issues. And it's <laughs> so easy to feel overwhelmed. And you said, no, one of the ways that we could get around that feeling is to simply reflect and to see what one thing could we individually do and not get overwhelmed. Oh, absolutely. But see, this connects to community. That if we're in community, then we don't have to do it all ourselves. We just have to do our part. And so the piece for me is to listen to where are you called, where each person needs to say this, where am I called, where am I called to act? Like I'm called to lobby on Capitol Hill and go around the country and <laughs> talking to people. But you're called, Melinda, to do this radio program plus your other activism work. We each have a call. And we mm -hmm. just need to respond, then it will all get done. Yeah. But trusting that I'm a piece of the bigger picture, we're right. all connected. Right. That's the important piece. Right. Tell me more about your Nuns on the Bus tour, <laughs> and how did you get started with that, and what kind of knowledge or wisdom did you gain from those trips? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, Nuns on the Bus got started really because the, the Vatican in a, a Vatican political move within our Roman Catholic Church said that our little organization was a bad influence on Catholic sisters in the United States. That was in 2012. It oh was my. pretty funny, but <sighs> I know, I know. We, we had nine full-time staff and we made the Vatican nervous. But the fact is that they were, a, the powers that be were upset that we had won on the health care fight. We had supported the Affordable Care Act. And the bishops' conference, the leadership, had opposed it. But we won. And so they were upset with us. That was what they were really mad about. And I knew it from the beginning. But we had all this attention. So I said, well, how do we use it for mission? And some of our, we got a bunch of our secular friends together. And they said, well, you need to go on the road on a bus. And you need to lift up the works of Catholic sisters and push back on the Ryan budget, which you'd been doing. And maybe we could get some traction on that. We got a lot of traction. It was fabulous. It was an amazing experience. And so we've done six trips so far, but each one of them is on a different theme. The most recent one in um, just before the election in 2018 was nuns on the bus on the road to Mar-a-Lago. And we were all out on tax policy trying to explain to people the impact of the 2017 tax bill and how it's hurting our country. It's hurting our nation. It's wrong. And so we were fairly successful in that. We had a great tour. We got to talk to thousands of people. And one of the things that we do with the bus is if you commit to working on our issue, you sign a card, then you get to sign the bus. So by the time we went, we went from Santa Monica, California, across as far up north as Albany, New York, and then down the East Coast, ended up in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And by the time we got there, we had thousands of signatures on the bus. It was exquisite. It was beautiful. And then it's no longer just nuns on the bus. It's everybody on the bus, right. all committed to working for justice for our nation. It's, right. it's a fabulous project. Yes, it is. Well, I want to just 
jump back and because my mouth sort of dropped open when you said this. Why on earth would bishops be opposed to the Affordable Care Act? Oh, dear, our poor leadership. They had very conservative staff who either inadvertently or on purpose misread the bill. And the staff told the bishops that there was some federal funding for abortion in the Affordable Care Act. There is no federal funding for abortion in the Affordable Care Act, and it says it, I believe, in three different places. But then the staff said, well, well, we were afraid there was federal funding for abortion. Two federal courts have found as a matter of law that there is no federal funding for abortion in the Affordable Care Act, period. But it was their fear that kept them from supporting it. Quite frankly, I think it was the staff's fairly strong alliance with Republicans and some of the Republican leadership that caused them to not want to pass the bill. So they were advocating against it. That's good to know. Well, sad, but good to know. Exactly. It's always good to know behind the scenes information. Well, I want to get back to sacred gossip for a moment because we just have a few minutes left. And under the umbrella of sacred gossip, what do you want our listeners to know most from some of the stories that you've heard? I think I want them to know that everyone, including them, have a story to tell. But the mandate is is to tell that story, to get it out. And in one way or another, take an action to support our democracy. One way to do that, I mean, if, if you're puzzling how to do that, is go to our website, networklobby.org, and see the ways you can take action on the issues that we follow. But your story is important for the growth of our nation. Mm-hmm. And in order to weave it together, we need to hear it. So share it. Be empowered. Be a part of us. Be community together. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I think that is such a powerful message. And yet I think it's so easy for us to feel isolated. Yeah. Just the way our country has become so digitized. We're always on our screens. And yet you're so right in what you say about community. I've never felt more joy as when I am working with other people towards a common goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way we're made. Mm -hmm. We should be uh, fulfill that call to be together, to make something happen, to make something good happen. We need it right now. We do. And I want to just bring our listeners' attention to the copy of the Network Connection magazine that I have, the third quarter from 2019. You wrote an excellent article titled, We Are Truly One Body, Economic Interdependent shows the depth of our connection to one another. You know, this sense that, well, one person has more than me. And this whole idea of coming together and sharing more is so critical. It is. And even some of the big businesses are beginning to notice this. The Business Roundtable just signed a a new agreement among the top 200 corporations in the U.S. saying it's more than just getting money to stockholders. We also need to take care of our employees, our consumers, our earth. And I thought, whoa, all right, they're waking up. We're making progress. Well, our time has slipped by, but I want to thank you for helping to wake all of us up. 
And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank Sister Simone Campbell, the Executive Director of Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. She is a religious leader, an attorney, and poet with extensive experience in public policy and advocacy for systemic change. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Great to be with you.